This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hey everyone, this is Brandon, and thanks for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. And from all of us here at HET, we'd like to thank our listeners for their incredible support. We'd also like to give a shout out to all of the individuals who gave us an iTunes review, and they are Matt Viegas, Felicia Wena, Rob Bining, Dave Kittle, DPT540, Jeremy Sutton, and Kyle Reichs. So thanks to those who felt that they got enough value out of our podcast to take the time to write an awesome iTunes review, as we greatly appreciate it, and we'll keep pushing forward to provide great content to everyone. Now, this is part one of our interview with Dr. Michael Wong from PhysioU. And before we get to our chat, we're pleased to extend a very generous offer from PhysioU, as they are fully invested to change the landscape of how physical therapists learn, in which they are offering an exclusive three-month free trial available to any of our podcast followers. Now, anyone who would like to get this trial can direct message us on the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast Facebook page, and then we shall send you a Google form that you'll fill out and send in to PhysioU, and they will unlock your free trial. Now, without further ado, we present part one with Michael Wong. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon Poen, and of course, as always, I'm joined by my other co-host, F. Scott Beal. And today we have a very special guest joining us today. And today we welcome Dr. Michael Wong. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, he is the co-founder and chief learning strategist at PhysioU, which is a software program, and it's also available as an app format, which focuses on improving clinical reasoning by deciphering the latest evidence-based guidelines into meaningful clinical practice to really help clinicians in a variety of settings, including orthopedic, neurologic, cardiopulmonary, and now pediatric, along with sections dedicated specifically to gait and range of motion. Now, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for all of your efforts to advance the PT profession as you definitely have made huge contributions to the world of PT and we are extremely, extremely humbled to have you as a guest tonight. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and kind of let them know about your accomplishments in the world of PT and kind of what you've been up to? Yeah, guys, thank you so much for having me on. And I am excited to to spend a few moments today to share um, a little bit of who we are and what we're doing and how we hope to impact the world of education. I've been a clinician since the year 2000. So um, it's been a good 17 years. Um, I've been a part of entry-level education for the past 15 years and um, have spent a lot of it trying to figure out why is it so hard to take young, eager DPT students 
and turn them into master clinicians. I mean, that is the focus of everything that I do. Um, the last few years, we have been uh, speaking a lot at um, Combined Sections meeting. We've been talking a lot about pain. We've been talking a lot about movement, um, about pattern recognition, and how important that is as a foundation for education. Um, and also talking about how we're leveraging digital technology to begin to solve problems um, that I have been a part of. I have watched uh, the evolution of. I have watched the lack of evolution of as well. Um, I mean, I am as much a part of the uh, the problem as I am hoping to be a part of the solution. And that is, I think, a unique uh, perspective to to be able to speak as you've spoken to many educators. We see life from both both sides. We see ourselves as clinicians. We see ourselves as professors and researchers. Much of the research that we've published um, has been related to manual ther therapy of the cervical spine and its effect on blood pressure and heart rate. We're beginning to tease out mechanisms of how manual therapy works um, and beginning to look further beyond just jiggling the, you know, jiggling the joint and hoping for the best. And I think also in this last few years, uh, my world has been consumed around shaping our lens related to movement. How does movement fit into a profession that now deems itself a movement specialist? And is that how we are creating clinicians in the classroom? And I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there um, because it is a very difficult, it is not an easy uh, task to try to accomplish. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of what what I've been doing. I've been, we founded PhysioU almost five and a half years ago with the idea that the first little book that I published, Pocket Orthopedics, which was the beginning of developing patterns, you'll note in that book that there were little patterns, these common problems that you would see in the shoulder. The patterns were laid out, signs and symptoms and treatment-based classifications. That was the hot topic of the time and it was a very relevant topic at the time. How all of those were tied to special tests and how they were tied to treatment-based classifications. And eventually I came to realize that even in these books that I could custom write for my own classes, they could not encompass all the components, the variables of developing clinical reasoning. Like we really needed our, our, young, our young clinicians to be able to become the, the, the clinical reasoning we need to develop so that they could go into the clinic and begin to have success. Uh, be able to treat patients and put their skills to use um, and actually uh, relish and flourish in their profession. So uh, I would say that's just a little glimpse of who I am and my dream of contributing to the physical therapy education in ways that technology can leverage. I love that, Michael. That's such a great take um, and, a, and a wonderful introduction. Um, so let's just jump right into it. You know, for those who aren't aware, what is clinical reasoning and why is it so important for any healthcare, healthcare provider to have? That is a great question. And it is, there is, it is not an easy answer, I would say. But the way that I would tell that story is think about the magic that happens from the moment the patient walks in the door to see you. And the skilled clinician is absorbing information about the body language, the fear, the expectation. And that there's then, then from there continues this process of interacting with the patient, right? So there's these questions that you've been trained to ask. 
and your ability to hear it, to value it, to listen to it, and to reflect it in a way where the patient says, hey, this guy's listening to me. He kind of get, he kind of gets what where, where I'm coming from. And from there, how from your training that you're able to develop some patterns, you're saying, hey, this guy begins to fit. This person really seems like they have anterior knee pain. They've had it, it particularly because they're active. This really begins to sound to me like possibly patellofemoral joint pain along with some other potential hypotheses. So you're developing from your subjective exam, you're developing hypotheses about clinical patterns. And then you begin this beautiful objective exam where you're gathering information about key impairments, right? And I, and I talk about key impairments or key findings because it's not good enough just to randomly do every possible test or every possible exam. There's no time in today's medical world to do that. And so the good clinician, the guy who's clinically reasoning, who's developing their pattern recognition will be able to do that faster and faster because over time, with a clinical reasoning process, they're, be able, they're beginning to be able to develop patterns that they recognize more quickly that they can access from their mind and be able to begin to manage and ex examine and manage impairments that are tied closely to the patient's functional limitation. All of this, so I've already spread a little into impairment hunts, observations of movements that might be causative or contributory to the problem, and the correction of these movement faults. I mean, just think about the connection of movement to pathology is already a new level of where we are headed as movement specialists. These are taking those treatments that you learned in orthopedics two or orthopedics one and matching it to a therapeutic exercise that you learned that's relevant to the impairment that you learned in TheraX fifth quarter, five classes removed from the pathology class. All of that is the beauty of this thing called clinical reasoning. It's what a clinician is versus a technician who would rub potentially whatever hurts, apply a modality to whatever hurts without any particular pattern or rehab theory. When you think about clinical reasoning, the reason why for many years, physical therapy did not seem to be very effective for any one problem was because we applied it in a blanket. We applied a certain type of technique to every back pain problem. And so when you run the numbers in the research, it seems like, wow, you know, this treatment doesn't seem to work, which really was the lead up to a few years back, these treatment-based classifications. Could we do the right thing for a group of patients that presented with a certain type of findings? And I would say that in the last five years, the development of the clinical practice guidelines based on the ICF categories, the International Classification of Function, these theories that the clinical practice guidelines are built on, like people with mobility deficits, they're stiff. And if they're stiff, you're probably going to examine the things that are they're probably stiff in, right? Joint, muscle, myofascia, tissue that might be restricted motion. And the treatment matching treatment category is to improve mobility. Something as simple as that, these uh, rehab theories has revolutionized the way that I teach. It, it's, I would say it's the most revolutionary thing beyond all of these apps is this idea that in entry level, the bulk of orthopedic rehabilitation concepts are being laid out nicely in these clinical practice guidelines that JOSPT and the ortho section have put out. And these rehab guidelines, these rehab theories can be foundational and can be 
essentially the theories that apply to almost all common musculoskeletal disorders. These rehab theories can be used to understand and manage most of these common problems. It, it has completely changed the game on how I teach. And, and I use this same rehab theories to spread across entry level, residency, and fellowship education, a standardized language and theory that is vetted by the clinical practice guidelines that spans entry level to post-professional education from the beginning to the highest level. Isn't, I mean, you've got to admit that that is a beautiful thing in a profession which we have often jumped and followed, and rightfully so in the early years, we have just followed certain methodologies and learned to use certain languages and saw the world from certain viewpoints. And in the early years, that was very, very important. But today, we have clinical practice guidelines that gives us a foundation upon which all physical therapists will be held to that standard. And also all, I believe, all uh, education platforms and educational systems, at least in the orthopedic realm, must be grounded in the clinical practice guidelines. So that's, that's kind of a long way to say that clinical reasoning is an essential part of the young clinicians and the clinicians that are practicing today. It is what allows us to continue to thrive and become more efficient and more effective in what we do. Mike, I couldn't agree more with all the concept that you said, and I think it was beautifully said. And and I totally agree. I think for me as a relatively newer clinician, I think that aspect has definitely been the one that I feel like I've had to work on the most just coming out of school because I feel like I was taught more of the technical aspects in terms of, but then learning how to actually recognize and kind of how to put it all together, you know, to choose the right in, right intervention or plan for that particular patient and what intervention to use, why, what, and how has been kind of the big key with all this development. And I'm learning every day from it. And you know, to kind of switch gears and kind of talk about more of the education realm with this, you know, with the guidelines and such, you know, in the traditional, in the traditional DPT mainstream educational model, what are some of the barriers with healthcare and PT provider education in regards to how they teach clinical reasoning? So having been in education for 15 years, um, over 15 years, and coming on as a young, eager professor, okay, remember that as a young professor, uh, many of us come in as relatively skilled clinicians and not necessarily skilled educators. So th these I consider to be two separate skill sets. So that's already uh, one significant hurdle. Now, people can learn to be great teachers, but it's often great to have great clinicians who can learn to be great teachers. So I would say this is one initial, uh, initial challenge, and this is a common across the board. The other common challenge is, and just like I think this was, um, uh, I think it was Brandon that had just mentioned that, think of yourself in your first couple of years, because I remember it very clearly. I would stand there in front of the patient with all of these ortho tools hanging from my belt. I am overloaded with manual therapy, exercises, pain science, movement science. I, I could barely understand what movement science was all of these tools hanging from my tool belt without any idea when to use what, right? This was a daily occurrence. Every patient, whoa, okay, so could this person have cancer? Could this be an infection? All of these things I was worried about. I had a thousand special tests to use in hopes that it would clarify my world. And by the time I ran off the special tests 
cliff, which is what I call it, because I, I mean, it's common, right? We go out into the world and we think that special test brings us clarity. So when you finally run off the special test cliff, you wonder, wait, wait what am I supposed to do again? Oh, by the way, you're out of time. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I think this is a commonality. This is my experience. And so patient after patient, you're wondering, what have I gotten myself into? After all that doctorate education, now I am a doctor. I have no idea what to do with this patient. Multiply that by 15 per day, right? And before you know it, you're wondering, what am I doing here? So when you think about I think about it regularly because in the first five years of my teaching, I came on and I was given the course load. You're a young professor. You teach this and this is where it is in the curriculum. Go for it. So every young professor says, oh, I'm going to do it the best I can. I learned all of these things in residency and fellowship. I'm going to bring all that stuff in. They're going to have the best teacher. But what you begin to realize at the end of that tunnel, so you have the students for a, a semester or a nine-week quarter. At the end of that tunnel, when you look at the outcome, you realize that volume, all those special tips and tricks that you have under your belt because you're a fellowship-trained clinician, is not the answer to bringing clarity to the young clinician, right? Because what you didn't need was seven tools to hammer a nail. You needed one good hammer and you need to know when to use it and what a nail looks like. So I'll tell you that the last 10 years, we have been trimming and getting rid of and thinking of what is the least they have to know, what is the best things they should know about. And I'm going to spend the bulk of my time teaching them how to recognize the types of people who need this type of tool. So what I just mentioned is the idea that Education is built in silos, and those silos are not always optimally organized, okay? And, and this is to no offense to any educator. We just come into the program and we are giving classes, but it, it is the, the responsibility of the educator to sit with their colleagues and to think carefully through, is the curricular design, does it, does it help to develop clinical reasoning? Are there bridges built between the classes? that allow for the connection of content? Is the educational environment built for skill set development and mastery, or is it built to develop reasoning? And ideally, it's built around both because you can't really have one without the other. So I would say that one, developing a skill to learn to teach is a completely different skill from being just a great clinician. I believe that it is important to be a great clinician, to be a great educator in, in the clinical sciences. And I also believe that we've, ha we've had to redesign and reorganize our entire orthopedic curriculum for the very reason that when I first came in, I taught therapeutic exercises first. And the students came back and said, I have no idea why you're teaching me this stuff. I don't know how to apply it. And half those exercises are already new. So how are you going to solve that problem? Right? How are you going to give meaning to all of these exercises? So we dissolved that and we built therapeutic exercises into each quarter of orthopedics so that when I talked about, and we did the same thing with pathology. We taught pathology in some early course and it had no tie-in to the examination, treatment, and exercise. We dissolved all of those courses and allowed each clinical course to now talk about pathology related to the lumbar spine examination related to the lumbar spine, 
movement related to the lumbar spine, where movement used to just be tacked on as a little course at the back because we didn't know exactly what to do with it. We embedded it so that the world that the young clinician grows up in does not know this method or that method. Though we, we give honor to all the specialists who have brought different tools to the table, but they grow up in a world where everything is linked. Movement, examination, manual therapy intervention, therapeutic exercises, everything is linked before we move on to the next joint. Because the risk, the danger of the silos is that there's no guarantee they can pull it together later. And the clinic is a challenging place to be with that many patients you have to see per hour today. So is that the place to pull all of those things together? It is part of the, it is part of the tools that we need, it, for sure. But I, I can tell you that because of the way that we have to see patients today, it is a very challenging place to try to pull all the pieces together. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I see partly in education. There is a uh, you know, there is a silo issue, an information silo issue of which the order of that information may or may not be optimal. There is this other thing that I think I often think about, right? The students become what you test. So think about how you guys were tested, okay? And I'm not even talking about in general what program you're from. Think about what you were generally tested in during your practical exams for orthopedics. Do you remember? I mean, it, I, it's been a while for me, but uh, yeah, I, I, I have a vague grasp of how siloed off and sectioned off each course was, especially orthopedics. Right. And if you think about, I mean, even today, in some ways, you have to test a certain way, right? We test skills and we test special tests and it's challenging to test reasoning. It's challenging to create environments in which reasoning can come out, in which you can give feedback and watch how students develop. And so the students become who we, what we test. I'm sure by the time you are done with ortho, you're very capable of doing many special tests. And you're probably very capable of performing all the common manual therapy techniques. But you see, this is not the end goal of a good program, of a good educational experience. The end goal was not just to equip you with tools, but to actually show you how to build a house with those tools, to show you how to be able to nuance, to recognize the common problems that would walk in the door. Because I always start with the common patterns first, right? The clinic, the most common, common clinical patterns. Could I get the students to be able to recognize the most common ones? Because if they could learn the most common ones and be able to say, oh, I remember that problem, this mobility deficit of the knee, this knee osteoarthritis problem. And I remember the theory that we talked about behind managing that. I, I know to examine range of motion, look at accessory mobility, look at the muscles that cross the joint. And primarily my job is to restore the mobility. This is a mobility deficit. So I know... I recognize how to do that. And oh, actually, that clinical pattern, mobility deficits, it actually shows up in the shoulder. That's frozen shoulder in the, in the frozen phase. Or oh, that actually fits for a stiff elbow or a, you know, or a, a osteoarthritic hip. Can you see that all of a sudden that one theory has now spanned multiple classes and has given you a way of looking at the world that now you can apply your exam and your treatment strategies and your exercise strategies because there was a theory that you could count on. 
it's not just this random, hey, there are these 12 pathologies of the hip. There's a secret recipe for treating all of them and examining all of them. Actually, for most of the common pathologies of every joint, there is a reasonable ICF-based rehab theory that helps to shape the way you would examine it, your understanding of why patients have disability, and you're able to now match impairments that are associated with these, with these categories and match impairments to treatments and treatments to therapeutic exercises. And you're able to actually educate the patient in a reasonable way because these clinical patterns were well-developed in your mind. Wow. Yeah, Mike, you're, you're blowing my mind here with a lot of this stuff. But I mean, some of the theories that I'm learning through the educational doctorate mainly revolve around creating a safe place and a safe haven for these students to to share and express thoughts and ideas and, and higher level learning stuff so that we can kind of pull out and draw out some of this critical learning and this criti critical clinical reasoning type stuff. Um, but let's let's go back to ground zero here. Let's just start at the bare bones basic. For our listeners who are not aware, right, what is PhysioU? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it started? Sure. Sure. Five years ago, actually, when I first started as a professor, a publisher invited me to write a book. And that book was built around some patterns. So every joint, shoulder joint would have shoulder impingement, frozen shoulder, uh, labral tears. So there were these patterns. And at that time, I thought, hey, why wouldn't I associate these patterns to some special tests? So let's begin this pattern thing. Five years later, I realized, actually, when we start looking at patients, you really have to clear the cervical spine. There's many, there's regional interdependence. How am I going to create a book that can seamlessly tie in all of these variables? And I began to realize that actually digital apps, software was the way that you could interlink multiple concepts, multiple examination techniques. All of those could be interlinked because now you were not based on a sequential model of information delivery. So I sat in the um, cafeteria with a napkin on the table and I started sketching out what would it be like if I could build connections from the, from the exam to the movement to the treatments to the therapeutic exercises, all these classes, modalities, all these classes that I taught. Could I connect all these patterns? And was there a way to talk about, so we decided we'd start with low back pain. And we said, if we could figure out a way, right? And I think even in the, in the education literature, they talk about, wouldn't it be nice if the experts could put their thoughts down on paper to create breadcrumbs for young clinicians to begin to see how all of these pieces come together? So we could develop that reasoning and allow them to sort out this volume of material we keep dumping on them that we could actually sort these things out for them early so that they knew how to put the tools in the right place. So we spent two years trying to figure out how to build the first clinical pattern recognition low back pain app, how to actually even organize this material. Think about this, there were many, uh, there were several apps prior to us who have done a phenomenal job of creating special test archives, manual therapy archives. And, but remember, in my mind, the archives of techniques and special tests is not solving the problem that I'm trying to solve. I'm trying to solve the problem of patient presentation, 
what the patient sounds like and how they move, what kind of examination would be relevant as a key finding, right? The key things that these guys would present with. And also another, another part of the app that talks about associate impairments that should be separated from the key findings. Other things that might contribute to the problem, but may not be the key things. I mean, those are all parts of the clinical reasoning. And could you even imagine five years ago, we were talking about what are some of the common movement faults we, we followed very closely. I mean, I was trained by Dr. Sarman in my fellowship. And over those years, evolving and thinking about how to integrate movement into an entry-level curriculum, we five years ago, we put these movement faults and linked them to the common pathologies. We said, hey, people with sciatica, disc herniation type problem, wouldn't it be interesting to see if they excessively flexed, if they flex too much in the lumbar spine, if that was the movement strategy that they chose that you would want to correct them out of? So we began to say, no, not everybody just needs lumbar stabe. We should look at each person, listen to the story they tell us about the movements that they do in life, the movements that they they posture themselves in or the postures they're in, and see if we can tie a movement fault to the condition. In my mind, that is probably one of the proudest things that we've done, is to attempt to integrate movement as a standard part of how we view common pathologies. So PhysioU, what took two years to do the first lumbar app, we began to speed up, we began to learn, ah, okay, this actually kind of works. It's complicated because reasoning is complicated. It's much easier just to build an app full of special tests. I would have been done a long time ago, but it's much more interesting to try to figure out how am I going to create reasoning for the students? How am I going to organize content and, and give honor to the masters who have developed all of these techniques and these ways of looking at patient management based on the clinical practice guidelines? Could we bring expertise and put it in a playable format that students could now use to sort themselves out even before they're dumped on with all of the techniques. Think about what that means. Today, before I even teach anything related to techniques, before we go into lab to go over those 100 techniques and the next 100 therex the next day, I have already played out the five most common patterns of low back pain based on the guidelines. And I have applied the rehab theories related from the, from the guidelines, I've applied the rehab theories and we have played the app out once so that they could kind of sort through. They would go, oh, this radiating pain problem, pain shooting down the leg. Yeah, I remember seeing something like that in the clinic. I remember seeing a straight leg raise. Do you see how powerful that is where you can access information, previously known knowledge, and begin to utilize what they already know and continue to sort it out? So prior to showing them all of these techniques, I have already taken them to a safe place expose them to the five main targets, you are going to learn how to manage these five main guideline-based low back pain categories. And I'm going to show you how the examination is different between categories, how the interventions are slightly different between the categories. And now when we go to lab, every single technique is sorted, is connected to a particular target condition. Right? You might say, man, that seems so cookbook. That's too simple. And I'm telling you that we are doing a service to the world when the students can identify the five most common ICF categories, the five most common low back pain categories. They can recognize them. 
they know a management strategy and examination strategy for them, and they can actually do a reasonable job with these five most common. Because from there, you can see the, the challenge of the less common problems or the problems that are mixed patterns, you have a chance at actually sorting that out. Whereas before, you're just confused all the way through. You didn't know there were five. You just thought that your exam would bring you clarity. But I'm saying that pattern recognition should be developed, can be developed for the most common types of patterns. Give clarity to the student. Give them confidence in managing these common problems. And when they build those patterns, they are now more capable of dealing with the complex patterns. Before, they can't tell the simple from the complicated. They're all intermixed. And so five years later, it took us five years to finish all the joints, right? We finished all the low, all low back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain. We just marched our way through. And every step of the way, we asked ourselves, should these techniques go into that? Do all of these special tests need to be there? We were in conversations with great friends and colleagues who are writing these guidelines. Um, to be able to chat with Dr. Gwen Joel about whiplash, for her to tell me, you know what? The way you guys talk about whiplash is much too simplistic. Go read Michelle Sterling's book, come back with a proposal, and then we'll look at it again. To be able to do that and to, to think about it from an educator standpoint, how much is too much and how little is too little, and to walk that fine balance and create these tools has been just this journey of my own growth and a continual journey of trimming the excess. We will never get better by just adding more. I don't know if you you, you guys can sense that. Yeah, I like I said, this stuff is act actually blowing my mind, Mike. It's, it's such a different way to look at things um, and a different frame of reference for, you know, again, and I've been out of school now 10, 11 years, but looking back, it would have been a much cleaner way, I think, to learn or at least give a good foundational, you know, amount of education before diving right into it. Um, I want to kind of take an offshoot question real quick that's unrelated to education directly, but um, a little bit more in the tech world here because of the way you guys are doing this. But how can physical therapists get started on like an app or software development if they have an idea like this? Um, and is that like lucrative, a lucrative avenue for PTs to pursue? So let me give you a couple of ways to look at that. The app market is a very crowded market. It's hard to be found. There are millions and millions of apps. So I think the second part to that question is most people expect things for free or for cheap. So the development cost is extremely high, not to mention the fact that every platform is separate. So you're going to, for most people, they're going to program an app in iOS, an app in Android, and an app for the web. Every single one of them is a, for the most part, a complete startup cost which also means you're supporting three different products. So the cost to market is very high. So you have to believe that what you're building is going to solve a significant problem. I mean, not everything has to solve a problem. I suppose Angry Birds solves a problem because it, it, it's something that people enjoy to do and you have a million people who want to do that. So you will do, do just fine releasing that for 99 cents. But when you think about what we're building for education, your market is much more niche, which is a good thing. The product focus is much more niche. I mean, we have not built 
barely, we've only just started to build patient centric type of apps. Every single app we've built, cardiopulmonary app built on the same idea of developing pattern recognition, your neuro exam app, all of these are completely focused on improving the ability of students to manage information and to begin to see connections between the information. So I would not necessarily say that this is done out of a, a desire to be lucrative because we each recognize what it costs every PT student to finish school and the harsh reality of what they're going to get paid when they finally get there, out there as, as a doctor. So inherently as a professor, uh, all of my students get, get our apps for free. This is my joy to build things for them. This is my joy to be able to see how they learn um, and to see how far they can come uh, with this new way of looking at developing pattern recognition, developing clinical reasoning. So I would say that, no, it is not really that lucrative. I would say that we're so thankful for the, for the students and for the instructors who promote the apps and say, hey, this is an important way and an important new tool. Let's support that. Because behind all of this blood, sweat, and tears, and it has been blood, sweat, and tears, mostly blood and sweat, uh, I've been enjoying myself the entire way with an amazing team of authors. But the, the reality is that you would probably make more money making burritos, right? Because people will buy burritos for three bucks, and they'll keep eating burritos for the rest of their life. So the reality is that this has always been and will always be a, a, a project of passion. My contribution to the world of education and to the international world of rehab, because from the very beginning, I realized that if I can teach students well and be a part of the student's journey, the impact factor, right? The impact on the lives of millions of people in China, of millions of patients in Southern California that are impacted by my students directly is huge. And that is the desire of building these apps that the world could download. This, there was, there is no longer a barrier. I cannot get this book shipped to me. I cannot afford this book, right? Today, that barrier is gone. Every single person in the world can download a an app about low back pain and see what the clinical practice guidelines are talking about. We can unify the entire world of rehab by building these tools and we can impact education at every level. I've built this first and foremost for the students. We can impact every student in the world related to rehab. And this is what has driven our passion to, to I mean, two weeks ago, we, I dreamt, I've been dreaming a little bit about a pediatrics app. How hard is that to learn and read about developmental milestones? Wouldn't that be beautiful if we could have nice videos of each month of the reflexes when they integrate and when they show up? Two weeks later, we already have six months of kids filmed and we're following a baby from its birth to the entire year. We'll follow this baby every month and you will have this boom into your PhysioU app for every instructor and every student in the world to be able to learn about what a normal child develops like. And we're collecting and filming as babies come in that have different developmental problems. We're filming and creating an archive and boom, up into the cloud, everyone in the world will be able to learn about that. I mean, one of the things I didn't even get to talk about is what is movement in the curriculum of a movement-based profession for a profession that has declared itself to be a movement specialist. Let that sink in for a second. 
do we know what is movement and how it contributes to musculoskeletal pathology? Have we integrated that into the entry-level curriculum in a way that allows clinicians to go out today and say, I am a movement specialist. I can see normal and abnormal movements, and I know how to correct that, right? That's what a movement specialist does. What resource do we have to learn that? How is that taught in entry level? Is it a course about movement science that's tacked onto the back of most programs, my program included? Is it on the forefront of every orthopedic instructor? Is that how the young students are brought up to see the world? Or do we try to squeeze movement in at the tail end of, of shaping your world to be seen through joint stiffness, muscle power, a standard special test-driven examination? Are we trying to shape the young clinicians by squeezing movement in at the back end? These are some of the mind-blowing challenges that I think every instructor faces and is learning on their own and thriving to become someone who can deliver that story in a way that is integrated, meaningful, useful, clinically applicable, because you've just de-siloed all of these isolated pieces and created a system where a movement scientist, a specialist in movement can truly step out into the clinical world, see a patient and see the world through the lens of movement. What tools do we have today to teach that? Well, I can tell you that we built the Gate app. For those of you who haven't seen the Gate app, is one of my most exciting apps because we built the Gate app as a template of how we could eventually teach movement. We are now building the app. Imagine that you could watch each phase of gait, look at the range of motion requirements, look at the muscle activity associated with that movement. No, no, no more stick figures. Look at the body, see the picture of a phase, and see the range of motion required for the phase and the muscle that might be firing. Isn't that the way to talk about movement? And couldn't we film that in slow motion from different views, just like we did it in the clinic? Front view, side view, rear view. Now take that model and apply that to forward bend. Wouldn't you want to know, as someone who treats low back pain, what optimal forward bend might look like and what non-optimal might look like? Isn't that a missing piece of the story of how you talk about movement related to low back pain? What tool do we have to teach that? We're going to build it. We were building it. We've already filmed the student, the patient, doing different versions of forward bend and talking about the consequences of different types of movements. Think about what that means for our profession and how we're going to shape the new lens of the young clinician. It's going to be through the eyes of why, how normal movement is less risky, optimal movement, okay? We don't even know what normal movement is. How optimal movement may be less risky and ulterior or alternate movement strategies they, they often will create risks, different risks on different tissues. Imagine if that was part of the conversation from the very beginning in your range of motion MMT class, that you knew about the most common movements, what they looked like from different views, what joints would move first to spare other tissues, what types of muscle activity is associated with certain types of movement. It would change the game forever. The development of these apps are out of a direct focus of hoping to be a contributor to solving the profession's problems in our education system, 
as well as profession-wide in being movement specialist. And we are excited to be spearheading this with many, many colleagues who are spending time doing their PhD work in movement analysis, um, leveraging our, what we have at our university to film movement, to use wireless range of motion sensors and EMG sensors, all of that we're leveraging using app technology and bringing it to the students at 10 bucks a piece, right? Each of these apps, $9.99, less than a meal at Chipotle's. That is partly why it may or may not be lucrative. But to me and the team, the value comes in a different currency. Imagine what PT education could be like. We're going to build those tools. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.